Hey, this is Erin Lindstrom, and you're listening to Thank You For You. This is a show about celebrating and acknowledging our humanness as well as our beingness, the easy and the hard, the gifts and the (laughs) gifts we don't really like but choose to accept anyway. This is a show about and for people in pursuit of more peace, more joy, more money, more justice, and more of the awe that life has to give us. Thank you for being here, and thank you for you. This conversation you are about to listen to with Jerisha Hawk is so good. <laughs> Jerisha is one of my um, favorite humans. She's one of my best friends. She is an inspiration and a just brilliant mind. And I am so excited to share her with you. In this conversation, we all we talk all about power, privilege, possibility, um, leadership. We talk about imposter syndrome. Like we talk about all of the things. Um, and it's very, like, I know Jerusha very well. I have not heard her share a lot of this before. And so it's really, really cool that we get to do this um, on Thank You For You. If you don't know Jerisha, um, she went from leading $400 million pipeline projects as an engineer to doubling her corporate salary and quitting her job within 18 months of starting her online business. She teaches coaches and service providers proven corporate strategies to package their expertise into a signature service and start their own six-figure plus business online. She has helped hundreds of CEOs start and grow and leverage um, coaching businesses that go from generating anywhere from $4,000 to $25,000 a month in less than nine months with her signature program services that sell. She also has another program, Leverage, which is for people who have a service that sells and are ready to scale that into a group coaching offer. And she has an upcoming mastermind called Legacy, which is all about going from, all right, now we have money, let's talk about wealth building and making sure your team is in order and all of that stuff. She is incredible. Every conversation I have with her, I am grateful for. And so I'm so excited to share this with you. Without further ado, please enjoy yourself some Jerisha Hawk. Jerisha Hawk. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here with me. Like virtual hugs. I'm like, yes, let's do this. So excited to be here. I feel like I'm like Oprah on a Michelle Obama when she was doing her book tour. That's the nicest thing on. anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> or like Oprah when she did her hers and she yes. was like, you know, it was her. It was either Michelle Obama, Tracy Ellis Ross, or Oprah and Tracy mm. Ellis Ross. That's like where I. That's like the scene that I feel like I'm sitting at right now. I love it. We are definitely going for super soul vibes here. Yeah. And yeah, we're just practicing for when we are on Oprah's couch. So <laughs> uh, to kind of kick us off, I'm so genuinely excited to have you here. You already know that you're one of my favorite people on the earth. And now everyone who listens to this podcast will know that too and understand why. So no pressure. Um, but I'm really looking forward to this conversation and just seeing where it takes us. And so to kick us off, I would love for you to share with us, who are you and how did you get here? Who am I and how did I get here? The first thing that comes to mind is like, I'm a child of God mm. and co-heirs with Christ. And I'm a trust fund baby of the kingdom. And like, that's truly where my identity, I think like is or that's who I am. Mm -hmm. When it comes to how did I get here? (laughs) Well, 
Oh, I guess I'll only be like all the way, like what's coming up for me. You know, I had two parents who my dad was 10 years older than my mom and they decided to, uh, you know, have a second child, even though I know at the time that's maybe not exactly what they wanted. I don't think they actually wanted a second kid, but I'm really grateful that um, they were not in an abundant financial position to uh, (laughs) get rid of me, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like, how did I get to where I am by like, um, like this, this, it was like this journey of, uh, opportunities where I had to choose resilience and buoyancy, or I had to choose to like lay down and not get back up. Mm. And I feel like how I got here was making the choice over and over again to like choose to get back up, to choose to take a step forward to, it was, it was a series of choices. And like, and if I wasn't even consciously choosing like my just resilience over time, learning how to be more buoyant, even when I'm not conscious of the decision, Mm-hmm. I feel like that's how I got here. Mm, I love that. Thank you. I'm like, I don't know if they can see my face, but I'm just like, is that what direction <laughs> we were supposed to be going in? They cannot see your face, but it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can go in any direction. So I would actually love if it's cool with you to hop back for a second and talk about little Jerisha. Um, growing up, like, did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? Like, did you have an idea of like what path you wanted to walk down? I all I, the career path always not always changed, but it varied over the my years. But like one thing I always knew, probably when I was like seven, I'm like I don't want to be poor. Mm. And even beyond poor, like I don't I don't think I knew like the real dynamic of like what rich was and what poor was. I just I, I think I remember thinking like I don't want to have to struggle. And like that was my definition of poor was like mm-hmm. this this struggle. And like, I knew that I didn't want to have to like work to kill my, like I would see my dad or see people in my family working multiple jobs, but still not being able to get by, or it always seemed like a struggle to get by, or it's just like barely have enough or just have enough. Mm-hmm. And I remember at a young age, like sitting myself down in my bedroom, like I know that this life is what I have to endure as a kid, but this is not what I want when I become an adult. And I just know that I don't want to have to struggle I don't want to have to just get by. Mm. So the career paths, I think, um, have evolved. Like when I was young, I used to watch Legally Blonde Mm -hmm. and like loved her and loved her so much. Like I wanted to be a lawyer, but I really wanted the identity of what I think she represented. Like she was cute and she was bubbly. And like sometimes people were like, she's like ditzy, but she was just herself. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that she embodied being exactly who she was and didn't feel like she had to conform to get into like the Ivy League institution or to be the lawyer. Like she could be herself um, and still be successful. Mm-hmm. But I really wanted like that identity and like just her being a lawyer. I'm like, oh, then maybe I just have to be a lawyer to do that. Yeah. Um, so that was like one path. Uh, I-, I used to watch, I should not have been watching these movies as a kid, but <laughs> whatever. Jerry Maguire. Yep. <laughs> Show me that. I was like, bruh. And he was like an agent and he was representing somebody. And he was like, you know, he was really good at knowing how to, at the time I couldn't articulate this, but looking back, like Jerry Maguire was really good at like positioning somebody mm-hmm. and articulating their value and like demanding their value on their behalf. 
And I used to like, I'm like, I want to be like Jerry Maguire. Like he is a, like he walks in, it's like, boom, boom, like show me the money. Like, let's make it happen. Like that was something that, um, like a path, I didn't know what the job was, but that was right. in like sketched in my mind. And there was at some point I wanted to be like, <laughs> I wanted to like get all the degrees. Like I wanted to be a lawyer. Like I wanted to get like a JD MBA. Mm-hmm. And also I have an engineering degree, which I had no idea I was ever going to be an engineer. Like that was not a career path I saw until like I was put into a position where I thought it would make the most financial sense for me to do it. Um, but there was, there was that identity at a, at a point where it was like, I had this engineering degree. I want to go back and get my JD MBA and be like this triple threat of like, she's a black woman and she's an engineer and she's like, bruh. There's like, I wanted to have no excuse as to why somebody wouldn't give me, like, wouldn't put me in the C-suite. So those are like tangible career paths I've considered over the years. I love that. It's so interesting how pulled to power, not in a bad way, but do you know what I mean? Like being in your power, it sounds like you were just like, "Mm -hmm. what's the biggest expression of me and like what I'm capable of. Yeah, but you can say power too. There was a part of me that's always desired to be in a position of authority mm. where when I spoke or if I made a decision, it carried enough weight where it would be deployed. So it was never like this, um, but, but it was all that type of authority or like quote unquote level of power was always because I wanted to dismantle the system, which I thought was the reason why by family and myself I had to like overcome certain barriers that I just felt like weren't equitable. Mm-hmm. So I always did. I desired like even watching Jerry Maguire, like he was in a position of authority to be able to speak on the behalf of his, um, you know, who he was representing. Yeah. Uh, legally blind. Like I don't think she was in like, necessarily like a position of authority or power, but she did have, a, I thought that she carried a level of privilege Mm-hmm. that gave her the, that allowed her to express the level of like freedom that she expressed in that movie. So to me, that was also a variation of power. Like how do I co-create or like a, get myself into a position of privilege where I feel free to pr- represent myself authentically? Oh, yep. <laughs> it's so good. There's so many just like themes within this of power and privilege and possibility and like really stepping into that and owning our power. Yes. And it's it's interesting knowing you and knowing your work and not that you're Jerry Maguire these days, but you're Jerisha Hawk, which is incredibly powerful. Um, and I feel like a lot of what you do, while it's based in sales, it really is based in owning your power. Yes. And like creating privilege for yourself that you can then harness to redistribute where the power currently lies. A thousand percent. Yes. And so it's so interesting to me because I think a lot of times, and I struggled this with myself as being someone who's good at sales and like not growing up being like, I want to be a salesperson. Like that doesn't sound powerful. You know what I mean? But actually realizing that like, oh, when you can move money, you can change the world. Can you talk a little bit about that? And like, as far as like you working with your clients, like I would just love to hear like, why is this important to you? What do you see like beyond the business for people? Man, like I, like de shackling from the system is like, honestly what I see. Mm-hmm. And when I think about like building a business and making money and converting clients is a means to an end. Like we mm-hmm. all have to be 
Um, I think we're living in a day and age now where we used to go to work to make money and now we're trying to find work to create meaning. Mm -hmm. And I think what we get to do through my business and helping people create services that sell and leveraging their business and growing in a lean way is as a, is a vehicle for us to create meaning in the world. But like for them beyond, like I'm imagining how they're going to, how their parenting style is going to shift. Mm -hmm. And like, I think about how their, what their kids are going to be able to like how their kids dream of possibility and what's available to them and like where their kids starting point is going to be in regards to like the scope of reality and the, like the, ex- I don't say the expansion of like, yeah, like the expansion of reality. They never even know prior that their parents lived in more of a confined space potentially. Right. Um, I think about like when people talk about generational wealth, I think it's a term that's thrown around a lot. Um, just generally speaking in our society without full contextual like, contextuality around like what that would actually mean or look like practically. But I, I really do believe that this generation, the clients that I get to work with will be like, maybe their parents were, were able to like give them the down payment on their home or their parents were able to pay for their education. But that generational wealth had one generational impact. And it does have a trickle effect because now that puts them in a position, but I just see like a, a larger ripple effect being able to be created financially for their descendants, but also like when I think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like I feel like their themselves, their kids, their kids' kids are going to be operating at a higher level of consciousness in regards to just like how they view the world, how like the limitations they do or don't put on themselves. Like I just feel like it's like I feel like we're dismantling more of that yeah. in addition to like the financial mobility that they're going to be able to have. 100%. I think it's so interesting too, because you're someone who definitely has affected me in the way that I think differently about being rich versus being wealthy and like what that means. And what you were just saying about like families and how building your business, I think is a huge personal development project. And right. And so like, even as we're learning how to, you know, grow and scale and lead, we are changing the way we're parenting. We change the way we have conversations. When we start to learn about our mind and the way that it's either holding us back or helping us move forward, that changes how we are in relationships with all different people, I think. And so one thing that I've seen in that is not only have has the way I feel like I am an adult in my life for my children, it also changes the way I am in my friendships. It changes the way I am holding space for my clients, for my family, like everything kind of shifts. And that you know, when we talk about wealth, I think there's the money side of it for sure. And then what really is wealth? Like if, you know, money can solve all of your problems, but at the same time, like you're still left with yourself. And there's something about getting wealthy through personal development that I think can be really important too. I think it's like, I was talking to my husband about this Mm -hmm. and um, it's like, it's this euphoric feeling of freedom. And when I say freedom, like it's this it's like when you probably, like, I know when I go hang out with you, I have this euphoric feeling of freedom because it's a, it, there's this, um, and I imagine if you're listening to this, there's probably some space maybe in your home or some place that you get to go to or a person that you know that you can go around where like all the guards are able to get let down mm-hmm. and you're able to fully express yourself at like the truest frequency possible. And to me, that is like my personal definition of wealth. Because it's like, but then I think about how can you be in an environment where you can feel that like safe, unguarded, 
ability to express yourself and to like a thousand percent be all of who you are and, and express yourself in that way. And I don't want to say like money has contributed, money has absolutely contributed to me learning how to express myself in that euphoric state. Mm. And, but it's not, it's not the money has been an aid or a resource, but it's not the root of like, if that makes sense. Cause I think sometimes people attach like, well, money can't buy you happiness. It cannot buy you happiness, but it can definitely remove obstacles in your life that create stress, which cause you to maybe struggle with finding joy. Mm-hmm. And I think like, I don't look at, you know, so I think it's, it's a tool and it's a resource, but it's not like the. Like, it's not the be all end all. Yeah. yeah. At a certain point. And you know what? I think that's important too, is because a lot of people, when you enter the coaching industry or just the online business world, whether you're a service provider or whatever it is you're doing here, we enter in different places. And I know I'm someone who entered with, I, at the time I started my business first, I had graduated from college and was like babysitting and working on my business. In year two of my business, I was married to a man who was in the Navy, who was gone most of the time with a small baby pregnant with another, like it wasn't cute. And we were, I, you know, I think we were making like 35, $40,000 a year. And so the decisions I had to make from that place were different than the decisions I'm making now with a multi six figure business. Um, and the money does change things to a certain level. And then I feel like you get to a level where it's like, okay, there's cash and you can make choices for the future, but your present doesn't change as much. Yes. Which is interesting. It is. Yeah. So coming and kind of climbing from, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about like when we talk and I know we're kind of labeling things and there's room for this to be uh, interpreted differently and for everyone's um, situation to feel a little bit different. But when we talk about, you said before, like you knew when you were little, you didn't want to be poor. And then moving into like, I'm fine, right? Like I'm capable and I'm surviving. And then like to rich and then wealthy. Can you talk a little bit about like, what do those different things mean? And as you've kind of moved through them, what have you, like for the human journey that goes along with this, I know, right? Like, are there things that you felt like you had to like unlearn besides just how to make the money? Like what went along with that on the personal side? Yeah. So like being a kid thinking I didn't want to be poor, my, my poor wasn't attached to a dollar amount, but it was attached to like the struggle that I saw Mm. and like the, I'm working so hard and I can't get by. Like it was this daily struggle. And as much as my parents chose to cover up some of it and chose not to come up to cover up some of it, but like I could just see what they would default to, to try to numb the pain that they were experiencing. Mm-hmm. So like when I thought of poor back then, I just thought of like this constant state of struggle, yeah. not necessarily a dollar amount. Yep. But then as my adolescence grew, I thought it was because they were like, didn't have enough money. Cause that's what they, they talked about money in a negative light all the time. We ain't got money for that. It was everything you walk in. Even now I go to my grandma. I, she sees me. It's like, how much that cost? Mm. Why everything got, why is that the first thing? And it, but so that to me was like this, this, um, I think about like poor. And then I think about like getting stable, like, um, like getting by or living like an okay life for me was my bills are paid on time. I don't really have to like, I don't really desire like, my needs are being met. Mm-hmm. And that was when I, the second I could work, I did, um, cause I wanted to be able to provide for myself. And I was in a position where I kind of had to, 
Um, so that was like the, and then all through college, like I was, that's really where my, like the beliefs really started to evolve. So my desire was always like, what's the highest paying job that I can get? And I remember it when I was at Iowa state, I worked in the, you know, like when you call the alumni to get them to donate back to the school, yeah. I was a beast, <laughs> but it was like nine twenty five an hour. And that was the most expensive job that you could get on campus. Um, so I did that and I, I, I could watching money come in. I'm like, I'm getting paid nine twenty five an hour. And I couldn't put this contextually together, but I was able to like close people to donate. And it was just, I was able to see money flow in a way that I had never really seen it tangibly mm-hmm. flow. So that just opened up my mind that like, oh, there's just more available. And then when I transferred back, um, my aunt passed away and my aunt and grandmother raised me. She had a two-year-old son at the time. So when she passed away my sophomore year of school, I get a phone call from my grandma. She's like, I'm 78 years old. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here on this earth. You're going to have to financially provide for Christian. And that really like shifted my perspective on, okay, what does that mean? And first question was, what do I want to be able to provide for him? And that really changed the trajectory of, again, how I started thinking about, like, that was a thought of, I don't know if that was a a thought I had to unlearn, but it was just a thought that I had to figure out how to navigate in regards to what would that mean and what would that look like? And then I had, that's when I really started asking myself, okay, what's required to make this happen? And am I willing to do what's required? where that was very conscious. And I think that was a huge, that's a mindset or like a belief pattern that I still hold very, very true to this day. Mm -hmm. And then I get back home and I'm like, well, what's the, I'm like, that's when I switched into engineering. Mm -hmm. I did not think I was smart enough to be an engineer. What were you doing before engineering? I was an architect. I was studying architecture Mm -hmm. and all my classes were like art and drawing at the time. You'd take a couple math classes, but engineering, you'd take calc one, two, three, and diffy Q as prereqs. Got it. And I still, to this day, don't feel like I'm smart enough to be an engineer, even though I graduated and like had a career in engineering. There's still a part of me that doesn't believe it. But um, the next like belief pattern was when I got back home, I was like, okay, I have to have time to study for school because like I can't coast by, Um, but I'm like, what's the place of employment? Because I also was funding myself through school. And that's when I started modeling and doing auto shows for being like a model for auto shows for Chrysler. And that was like another unlearning that I don't like trading time for money. Isn't the way that I always saw that it had to be traded time for. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't have to work nine twenty five an hour, 40 hours a week to make X amount of money. Uh, I was able to work in a three day period and make what I would have made for the entire month working nine, $10 an hour, 40 hours a week. And that like completely shattered. I was like, Oh, (laughs) there's another level of the system. Mm. And that really catapulted. Like that was a huge unlearning. Cause it was like, you know, you see everybody else, like, well, I saw everybody else like hustling and working hard and struggling to get by. And it was like, Jay, how you out here just breezy being able to do all this studying? Like you cool during the week. I'm like, oh, I made all my money in this weekend for the month. I'm like, I have space and opportunity. Mm. And that was a huge, like that really was huge for me being exposed. I was like 19 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't, I never really share this publicly, but I will share this because this is another job that I got during that time period that also changed my view of money and my view, like my relationship to like 
positioning yourself. Mm-hmm. I feel embarrassed even admitting this, but y'all, this is really what happened. I won't name any names, but I worked, uh, I was hired by club owners in Detroit um, where I would, which I was like 2021 and I would get paid to basically get other people to buy me drinks, Mm -hmm. but my drinks were just juice. (laughs) And I didn't really understand why these people, these owners would pay me a couple hundred dollars a night and I'd be working three or four hours. So like, again, concept of time for money was being like completely broken and dismantled. I'm like, why is this so valuable for you? to pay me a couple hundred dollars when other people are buying me drinks. And then one of the owners actually explained to me like margins and like how the business made money and like why this was actually beneficial for them for to pay me. And the next week I quit the job because I felt completely out of it. Like, I didn't know what I didn't yeah. know. And I felt yeah. like I knew I'm like, Oh, okay. Like they're buying me a drink and I'm just getting juice. Like not a big deal. But when he broke it down, I was like, bruh, that's smart. And two, I can't keep working. I yeah. can't. <laughs> But it just made me like, it really just opened up my mind to like business and just like how, what's valuable and what's not and just in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think those are some like the earlier things that I think have like, were like the foundational elements to like the mental shifts that were changing for me to, I don't know, I could talk about my adult stuff, but that, those were some things that I never really talk about anywhere else. That yeah. Have definitely shaped how I view the world and how this journey has, like the foundation of how I've been able to evolve beyond that now. Yeah, it's interesting to me. One of the things you mentioned is um, asking yourself that question of, like, okay, like what's required and am I willing to do it? And I have heard you say this over the last, the three years that we've like known each other and been in friendship. Um, And also, like, you know, we've worked with each other in different capacities and hearing you lead your team, it's very much like that too. So it's interesting to me just that like that is now to me feels like a core piece of like who is Jerisha Hawk and how do you run things is like asking yourself that question. A thousand percent. And I think like, I don't know, we all, I think a lot of us get into situations where you've probably been in a situation like that. Like, what am I willing to do? And like, Mm -hmm. how am I going to show up now because of some, something that happened? That's Mm -hmm. absolutely like, I think it's like a fundamental part of my, my being at this point, like any, I don't think any goal is unattainable. I just think we have unattainable, like unrealistic expectations of what's required to get them. Mm -hmm. And then once I I truly believe once you understand what's required and then you make the commitment to go after it, you can have anything that you want in this world. Damn. (laughs) That's how I feel. (laughs) What do you think holds most people back? Uh, the fear of who might watch them fail, not the fear of failure itself. Ooh, that's honestly what I believe. I think the fear of failure, like I think can cause us to hesitate, Mm -hmm. but I think the thing that stops people is the fear of who might watch them if they do not make it, if they fail. Wow. Whether that's somebody they love, somebody they know, somebody they don't know, a complete stranger, somebody on the internet, like potential, the potentiality of trolls in their comments. Right. I think it's, um, and I, yeah, that's, that's really what I think stops most people. Do you, would you say that you've like failed along the way or has it been all like win, daily. win, 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 win? Yeah. Daily, 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 daily. Well, it's interesting. Okay. So in our beautiful industry, once again, like I think so much of what we see are the wins and the highlights, right? Can you, are you open to like sharing a little bit like 
What does failure look like when you're succeeding? Oh my gosh. Well, like this might not be a huge failure, but it's something that I would classify as like, oh, I don't even like to call them failures. It's right. Like, it's like the opportunities where like a lesson is learned. Mm-hmm. And I, I really don't like to believe, I try not to believe in failure. Um, but like I was working on, this is like a tangent. I can talk about this and talk about the opposite. Yep. But on uh, the other day, I've been trying to, as our team is growing, we know what to do. We know how to do it, but we didn't know how to visually display our process in a way that was like clear to the team in a project management system. I was work, I've been working on this for two years. <laughs> okay. And like, we're succeeding because like we knew enough like we knew how, what we needed to do and how to do it. But as a small team, it, we didn't necessarily, ha- it wasn't a priority for it to be documented in a clear way because the, all of what we needed to do was just inside of the three of our heads. Really the two, it was to me and another person. It was in mm-hmm. our heads, but she's rolling off the team and our team is growing and we're splitting up her role into three positions. We can't keep operating like that. Or I know that that's not long-term sustainable. Mm-hmm. So literally for the past two years, we've been trying, I've been failing every day because <laughs> I could not, I've hired two consultants. I spend probably about three to $4,000 to try to like fix, well, really more than that. But I've mm-hmm. paid other people about three to $4,000 to come in and fix the problem. Um, it didn't work. I have switched from Asana to ClickUp, tried out Basecamp, like, those didn't work. Um, like we've been, I've been failing every day for the past two years in that. And then on Friday I I was working for like an eight hour, 10 hour stretch. And like, I think I I'm at like 75% Mm -hmm. of where, of what good getting there. And it's like, and even in that 10 hour stretch and I was working, I had made three different variations of how the process was going to be implemented into Asana. So like the first time it didn't work, I'm like F this didn't work. And then I had to build another one and like that didn't work. And the third one I built, I'm like, I think this is 80% there. Mm-hmm. So that's just like, um, you know, an example how like, this is something that I've, I've literally, I don't want to say it's a failure, but I've seen something being broken. Yeah. And I could not figure out the solution for it, but that didn't mean that like, but, and I say, I use that as an example. Cause I think for me, when I'm like, okay, I'm at this point of success, We've crossed the seven-figure mark in business. I have to, I'm choosing to show up as a different type of leader moving forward. And I feel like it's required of me if I want to continue to allow the company to grow. But mm-hmm. something like that has been a thing that has caused me to question my capabilities as to whether or not I can lead at a higher level for my company. Mm. I'm like, we do this every day. I can't document and clearly articulate this to my team. I can articulate the value of our program and sell it. But like, how can I, I, I'm struggling to articulate this one core function, which is like the heartbeat of our business to my team members. Mm -hmm. Or I can tell them, but I can't visually display it in a way where we would be able to like coexist and everybody be able to work remotely in a healthy way. Right. Like something like, and, and the fact that I've hired two people and it didn't work out and I've switched project management systems and it didn't work out. And now we're going back to the thing that we had started with in the first place. And it's like, but that is like a failure that I've, I think about and have thought about on a daily basis for the past two years mm. and has, it has caused me to doubt and question my capabilities to lead beyond. So like, that's an example of failing daily because it's <laughs> space in my right. mind. Yeah. It causes me to doubt. 
I think it's important to just like, even to know and to see that like, oh, not everything's working perfectly all the time. And you can still have huge wins throughout that. And another thing that you said that also sticks out to me just is number one, as we started to talk about failure and you saying like, I don't really believe in it. Like once we start to talk about it with ourselves, we can, you can hear, I, I just witnessed in you the inner work that you've done of like, well, it's really a growth opportunity and I'm learning from it. So like, it's not the end of the world, which is different than how some people would describe that. Yeah. And then also you talking about where you are now and you said like, you know, we're 75% of the way there or we're 80% of the way there. To some people, they would be like, we're still failing. And it's very different to see the progress happening and to be able to be where you are and, and put that in the win category is progress instead of just perfection being the only thing available for the win side. A thousand percent. Literally one of my team members was like, whoever knew who joins a team, they're in such a position of privilege because they do not know the struggle we have been going through. It's like, I want, she was like, I want to put them in the old system and then make, so they can appreciate where we are now. And it's just like, but I'm, I'm glad that you say that because one of my other um, like beliefs or core values is like, it's progress over perfection. And like, I'm still working on that being the default thought that I have. Mm-hmm. It's like, I know that intellectually, but it hasn't in, like, I'm, st- I'm still trying to embed it into like my core belief system mm-hmm. to not focus on perfection and to like count, like focus on the progress and to track the progress. And like, I, I'm still trying to work that into that being the default thought that I yeah. have. Mm-hmm. So question, as you're stepping like into leadership more and more and like running the team and getting everything ready and like, hitting seven figures and multiple like $100,000 a month and all the things. Um, is imposter syndrome still a thing that pops up? Yep. <laughs> okay. I thought it would be over. It's not over yet? No. Has it changed or is it the same? It's changed. My imposter syndrome before used to be like my voice isn't good enough. I need to mimic or sound like somebody else in order to be successful. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I I really question, like, you know, people talk about like create content, be authentic. Like it is scary AF to authentically express your perspective online. Mm. And I, that was some, that's like the first level of imposter syndrome because I would see other people and I'm like, man, like they're really bold with their beliefs and like sharing their beliefs and like sharing their perspective and just like writing the caption. Like I, I used to hate writing. Cause I'm like, I, when a page would come up and I have to write a caption, it was because it's not because I didn't actually, I'm not a decent writer, but it was because there was this embedded fear of like being like authentically expressing myself in such a raw way. It's it, that's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I just suck at writing. I can't write. It's like, ah, yeah, I'm on here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think about imposter syndrome today. It's just like, um, I'm, I'm confident in my voice. I'm confident in my perspective. I'm like, I think I'm bold in how I share that. But sometimes I now question like, um, like, is it still good enough? Like, is there mm-hmm. something more? Like I, sometimes I'll, I'll see other people in the industry or even outside of our industry. And I'm just like, man, like there's like, it seems like they have their stuff more together. Mm-hmm. And it's like, um, but I think th- this imposter syndrome, I think is more rooted in stuff I was taught as 
a, a, a black woman, like you have to be twice as good to get half as much like mm-hmm. that. It's like, it's like that piece of me that's um, being more in the question. It's like, yeah, I was black and I was bald and like, I was able to get this far, like dope. Now I feel like I'm not that the people that I admire are now individuals who are ch- looking to hire me. And it's mm-hmm. like, wait a minute. I can see other people who are trying to get to where I am, but you guys are where I'm at or beyond. And you still see there's value in me. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's like the, that's the imposter syndrome that I like wrestle with now. Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing that. It's really important. And I think it's interesting because as we kind of like build businesses and kind of like heal through that, a lot of the times we're, you know, we're up against ourselves for most of it. Like it's not about anyone on the outside. Like the biggest competition you have is your inner critic and like, good luck getting past that wall. Um, Me versus my ego. Right. Right. And like in the beginning it is like, okay, now I understand that I'm valuable and like I'm helpful and I can help you. If you are behind me, I can show you how to get closer to where I am. And then when you're in the spot in containers with different people who value your opinion and you consider them further than you, because we all have some little map that we're like putting people on. And at the end of the day, like we're all just humans and we're all just trying and like our businesses make different amounts of money and cool, like, and we can have goals and go for them. And so many of us, regardless of like those measurements that we're considering when we put people in their measuring stick spot, like it's still helpful to talk to other people who are playing the game and who are out there on the measuring stick and who have different experiences and gifts to kind of like share with everyone who's doing that. Yeah. And I feel like that's such an abundant place to be when you're like, Oh, okay. Like every, everyone is helpful (laughs) to a certain extent. Like everyone can be helpful in a different way. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And I think we were talking about this and I'm just like, when I was in corporate, I had the same, like this, this same thought came up in corporate because I was on projects that were, mm-hmm. it was $400 million pipeline project I was the lead engineer of. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I've never seen that much money in my life. But that the right. same imposter syndrome came up there too, of like, am I capable of doing this? Like, but it's, it, and it's, um, I don't know, it just feels different now that it's like, it's me and it's like my brand and my intellectual property. And it's like, you got like, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That's, yeah. What do you see for yourself like 10 years from now? I see first thing that come to mind is I'm in a position where my net worth uh, allows me to be retired and mm-hmm. I'm purely choosing to work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's like, the, that, that's like my yeah, financial that's objective. That's the big one. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else do I see in 10 years? I see it. I'm my mother. Mm-hmm. I see like, quarterly hosting shindigs at our house. Um, I see friends spending the night, like we're like a little bed and breakfast, but like not a bed Mm -hmm, and breakfast. mm -hmm. Um, I see me feeling like super secure at the country club. Mm -hmm. I just recently joined a country club. (laughs) Dismantling so many beliefs I have about like so much stuff. The mindset work of being in a country club. Yep. Oh my gosh, like mm-hmm. all rich people are not bad mm-hmm. <laughs> or sleazy or conniving or right. It's just uh, so many things are being broken by being in that space. Um, 10 years, like I see like people on my team having like me having six figure salaries. Mm. Um, 
I see like a company that like really values um, like the mental health of my employees and like not just giving them vacation days, but like paying for their vacation. Yeah. Um, I see like 10 years from now, like I see because of the work that we've been able to do through this company, mm-hmm. the 1% is no longer just 1%. Mm. Like I see so many more millionaires that are the non-traditional statistics of what it's supposed to look like. I I see that number being moved when like they put out the census or they put out the report. It's like Mm -hmm. over the last decade, we've had a significant rise in female millionaires and what, what has this contributed to? And the online industry is just revolutionizing the access to wealth and equity across the globe. And wow. I have chills. (laughs) I love that you just did character work. (laughs) There is so much goodness happening here. That's what I see. And I see just being proud to know that we've contributed to that needle being moved. Mm. What do you feel like? Do you... Do you feel like you have a core message for people? Like the thing that you are supposed to show up and share with them no matter where they are on the journey? Obey. Obedience. Mm. It's, it's rooted in obedience. I'm like, bling, yep. because it's like, uh, it's probably a book in me at some point. Yeah. Um, but like when I think about the core message, like beyond everything, it, it's, 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 it's being obedient to the call is like the core message. Cause I think all of us, I truly, truly believe like when I mentioned our pure identity, regardless of like what God you may or may not believe in, I do believe that we have, we all are connected to a higher source. And for me that, you know, that is God. I'm a Jesus girl through and through. And I believe, I I do not believe it's happenstance that you were born at the moment that you were born in like the statistics on that. I know I've read some study that's like a 4 trillion to one chance that like you, the sperm and the egg connected with the parents that you have. Like the fact that you are here is a miracle. And I just don't think that that, I don't think that we're just placed here for no reason. And I really do believe that every single one of us individually has a unique call in which that we have been, we've been called to show up in and, and to lead in. And I think our only responsibility as human beings is to obey the call. And being obedient to what we've been called to is like one of the hardest things to do because like, hey, we're human and like we struggle with the flesh and we struggle with the ego. And like, hey, there's this world that we live in with other humans who also struggle with their flesh and struggle with their ego. Mm -hmm. And like third, like the devil is an active participant in this world and his pure job is to distract, destroy or kill. And the closer and more alignment that you are being in obedience, the stronger his force, I think, comes until you reach a certain point. And I, that's what I choose to believe. I choose to believe that at some point he's going to back off and be like, all right, she's on, like, I can't get to her. <laughs> she's I untouchable. <laughs> but I truly believe that, like, that's the message of that. If, if through everything, it's, it's rooted in being obedient to what you've been called to do. Don't be obedient to your comfort zone. <sighs> Thank yeah. you for that. Mm-hmm. Oh, being obedient to what you're called to do and not being obedient to your comfort zone or your circumstances or your circumstances. 
which I think is rooted in the comfort zone. But I also make sure that's clarified. Interesting. I love it. Thank you so much for this conversation, Jerisha. Thank you for showing up in this world and being obedient. You were such a just an example of exactly like you practice what you preach and show up every day for yourself and for your clients, for your business, for your family and for the world and really like redistrib- redistributing power and actually creating change. And it's so inspiring. And I feel so grateful to know you and love you and um, be sharing and walking along this path with you. So thank you so much for taking the time today for chatting and thank you for you. I love you, Aaron. <laughs> I love you too. Hey, it's Erin, and I want you to know that you matter. Everything you're doing and everything you've done, it all matters. It all counts because you are important to the people around you, your family and friends, your audience, your clients, and quite honestly, to the world. Whether you're changing lives on the front line or changing lives while you're changing diapers, your presence matters. Every life you touch counts. And from just one interaction, there can be infinite, meaningful effects. And for that reason, I want to thank you for showing up and doing the work to be with yourself and share your light and your gifts and your love with those around you. If you want support with any of this human being stuff, you're always welcome to join me inside of my coaching membership, Human Being Club at humanbeingclub.com or follow along with me on Instagram for more behind the scenes, silly stuff at Erin Lindstrom. Once again, thank you for being here and thank you for you.